0: And this is DataCast, join me for all conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to a new interview with DataCast and today I have the pleasure to chat with uh, Dr. Amita Kapoor. She is an associate professor in a college in the University of Delhi. She has more than 20 years of teaching experience. She is uh, the author of various best selling books in the field of AI and deep learning. As a DAAD fellow, she has won many accolades, with the most recent being the Intel AI Spotlight Awards 2019 in Europe. Uh, as an active researcher, she has more than 50 publications in international journals and conferences. She is also extremely passionate about using AI for the betterment of society and humanity in general. So yeah, Dr. Kapoor, welcome to the show.
2: Uh, Thank you, James. It's my pleasure to be on your show.
1: So uh, I want to start out just talking about your educational background. You studied electronics back in the 90s, I suppose. And so can you describe just your, your undergrad and master experience?
2: Yeah, I would say they were one of the best times. Obviously, the studying time is the best time, but more for me because I was introduced to the subject of neural networks and artificial intelligence. It's a love which I carry even today. Um, at that stage in 1990s, there were not many teachers who were available to teach that subject, and like uh, the course which I had joined was a very new course. So kind of you know almost the first and second batch was like mine batch, and so there were not many teachers, and we were going to places like IIT Delhi or even IISc Bangalore to learn more about neural networks. So any lecture, any open lecture that used to be there, I would go there and, you know, attend that particular part. And even with my master's, I did my uh, training in artificial intelligence, which again was kind of very new, still in Indian scenario, I would say that. And uh, again, that was again another time where I read a lot of science fiction, especially SMO which kind of, you know, increased my passion for both robotics as well
1: as AI. And so like, uh, yeah, I suppose that your education kind of got your interest into in the field. And then uh, you actually, in sort of the, the, the mid-90s, around 96, you, um, you know, you started your, your career as an associate professor at the University of Delhi. So I suppose, you know, what compelled you to pursue a path as an academic professor?
2: Yeah, that is a kind of an interesting question in the sense that it made me think as I was thinking back about it, even when I was studying in school, I had two passions. One was reading, no matter what you give me. I means if it has words on it, I will read it. And the other was teaching. Because I even used to teach my own classmates in exchange of books. So they will give me books to read and I will teach them the subjects which they were not able to understand from the teacher. So I guess it was kind of culmination of whatever I had been doing to become a you know professor because I was getting to read a lot, teach a lot, and at the same time it means once you read and teach you do have lot of questions, and that is the whole idea of research finding answers to your questions. So I had freedom, a kind of an academic liberty to do you know the research in the area I want to do. So this was one of the reasons I decided to become a professor, choose academic career.
1: Mm, I see. Yeah, thank, thanks a lot for sharing that. And it, it's, it's great to hear that, you, um, you know, when you say that you teach your, your classmate to in exchange for books, that really shows your dedication for, for, for knowledge acquisition. Around 2003, you uh, also started a PhD studying photonics at the University of Delhi. And uh, in fact, you know, during your PhD, you uh, were also awarded a fellowship to pursue a, a part of your research work at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany. So can you just share a brief overview of your PhD experience and uh, you know, uh, some, some extra details about your dissertation?
2: Yeah, definitely. PhD kind of changes you a lot because you learn a lot in PhD. More than the subject, you learn how to do research. You learn how to tackle problems, especially unsolvable problems. That way I had kind of, you know, two supervisors which were both perfectionists. So kind of, you know, I had a lot of pressure to be perfect in whatever I do and uh, my work in Germany was comparatively much easier for me although it was more you know oriented towards goals that you have to fulfill some particular tasks you have to definitely complete them but the focus was only solely only on the work so that way, I felt my time period within Germany was much more easier. Initially when I started with my PhD I wanted to work on optical neural networks but both my supervisors the one in India and the one in Germany they both were reluctant to do anything with the neural networks is quoting my German professor, professor Paul and Freud. He said, neural networks are alchemy and it was like, okay, fine. I cannot argue because at that time, yes, neural networks were notoriously, you know, unreliable. I could not pursue optical neural networks at that particular period, but i worked on optical amplifiers and long period gratings. So the work was basically developing code in C++, using physics-based modeling to model behavior of optical amplifiers so that was the work which i was involved in it and kind of uh, had two interesting problems which i saw one of them was basically related with optical amplifiers so what happens with optical amplifiers they give gain to the optical signal but that gain is in a band it's called a c-band but that gain is not uniform there is a lot of research happening, especially at that time, that how to flatten that game. So in my lab, we were working on it and we decided what if we can build up a grating within the fiber itself. So that should, you know, solve the problem of flattening. So that was one interesting area which I worked up in. And another thing which I developed was basically I wrote an algorithm so that we could design a reflective index sensor using only the gratings. So these are two works which I feel have been great contribution from my side.
1: I'm just curious, you know, how did the field of photonics evolve since you work on your thesis like in the past?
2: You yeah, know. the field of photonics have evolved means like you say photonics has is a backbone of everything that we are doing, especially the Internet. It is the backbone of that. And today means like at that time we were talking about terahertz frequency communication, today we have terahertz frequency communication. And it is because of the photonics that we can even think about holographic and all that stuff. The only thing is photonics requires a lot of physical equipments, which are very costly. So once I finished my PhD from Germany, it was not possible to continue in photonics in that sense. And plus, I had always passion for neural networks. So, you know, it was easier for me to shift to neural networks.
1: Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And you've been a professor for... more than 20 years now. Yeah, You've been teaching AI and and deep learning and neural networks over the past throughout the course of your teaching career as a professor. How did you see the education in this field evolve during these past two decades?
2: Ah, That has been kind of, you know, when I started in 1996, The students had no idea about the subject of neural networks. So when I used to tell them what neural networks might be able to achieve one day, they used to behave as if, okay, fine, it might happen, but it will happen sometime in future and definitely not our future. So, you know, there was lack of interest. So, okay, they will study it because of the since it's part of the curriculum and everything, but it wasn't something of a passion that they have to do it, they have to you know go deep into it and they have to master it something like that it was never like that and then somewhere around 2012 when the hype started everyone now wants to learn neural networks means that, that is something you know kind of a change in the sense of the kush people who come and you know ask for guidance now so i would say that evolution has definitely happened but i still find that there is still more to do especially with respect to the education of neural networks in the sense that People can learn to code, they can learn to write the programs, but understanding how that particular model is working still requires, you know, in-depth study of the subject. So that way, I think slowly the focus will move in that area as well.
1: Well, in, in terms of the actual content itself, right? I'm just curious, like what, what sort of materials that Have you taught back in the early 2000s and what sort of materials you...
2: Yeah, did, what, I, what we used to, means I used to teach basically neural networks and we used to follow Simon Hakins so that is one of the fabulous books written on neural networks and it was basically you know starting up with means like the languages that we used to use was Fortran and C++ at that time 90s 2000 because python is comparatively very new that way right so we used to pro- do the programming it's like I used to have the labs in uh, C++ and Fortran and students used to make up multi-layer perceptrons to implement the backpropagation algorithm by hand in C++. So that was kind of, that is what we used to do. But yes, we were limited because of both the things in the sense of computers as well, because the computers had that amount of computational power as well as memory power to handle big data. Means I didn't know that programs used to sometimes take three, three, four, four days, simple programs. They used to take three, three, four, four days to just train. So that was that particular time, but uh, now with Collab, things have become much easier, like Collab and Kaggle notebooks, things have become much easier. So same codes can r- now run within 30 minutes.
1: One interesting thing you said, so shifting basically shifting from using like C++ and Fortran to using like Python, right? How does it help with like, I guess, as a teacher, you know, I, I guess that, that probably how with like the way you um, yes. demo de- de- uh, examples uh, how, how does it change for you yeah what
2: happens is python is comparatively easier with both fortran and c the focus was more on learning language first so mm. if the student does not know the language it was very difficult for them to write down a neural network program in that language they are difficult languages especially for the beginners right unless the person has been working in those languages for years they are not really that comfortable in those languages python on the other hand is comparatively easy even for the beginners, because even if you have just started, you can write down programs in Python comparatively much easier, especially with the fact of Jupyter Notebook that you you know just write it down and you can see what is happening. So that interpretability of Python makes it definitely much more convenient to learn as compared to both C++ and Fortran.
1: In addition to teaching like neural networks and AIU, I also noticed that you also teach other classes in networking and operating system and, you know, computer communication. So how does that kind of relate to some of the materials that you taught with neural networks, right?
2: Basically, the thing is like, like, for example, operating systems that I teach or even computer networks, embedded systems. So what happens is like I've even taught robotics. So what happens is basically like, for example, in robotics, you can always correlate the real problems Like you're working with the sensor data there. So you have a lot of sensors. You can always correlate what you're working up with with the AI part and, you know, tell the students how you can really use it in real life. Mm -hmm. Pure AI you do not use in real life. You use some application of AI in real life. So that correlation becomes much easier when you are, you know, teaching other subjects. Like even, for example, OS, the OS uses so many AI algorithms, the search algorithms. So, you know, that way you're able to correlate them with their real life. And that, I guess, as a teacher makes more impact to the student because once they understand how the subject relates with their day-to-day use, they are more interested in learning that subject.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and, and I noticed that much more of an emphasis on, on learning system. There's a lot of resources out there to learn about AI, but you know, people who, who maybe need to feel maybe not have that understanding of computer system yet. So yes. yeah, that definitely it's very important to understand that lower level computer yes. work, right?
2: Very true, very true. Especially like, you know, telling the student that it's why the extension has to be dot by or it can be any other convention, where it will matter, where it will not matter. So these are the simple, you know, operating system tasks of, you know, file naming, directory structure. Something which, if a student understands, become easier to, you know, write down a quote.
1: And uh, in addition to teaching, you also have published more than forty public publications in variety of international and national journals and conferences. So uh, would you mind, like, just sharing a few of the papers that you are most proud of?
2: Means one of the papers which I'm most proud of is not one of the most cited in the sense that that is kind of, I would say, my dream topic. So it's a work which I started somewhere in 2015 and it combines the concept of social network analysis and neural networks. And what this work is basically about is modeling the behavior of human society using neural networks and analyzing that network using social network analysis techniques. And the work that has already been published has been basically uh, means like there we have kind of worked up with the fact that if I'm changing the sequence of events, it affects the intragroup dynamics. Mm-hmm. And we have also been able to predict using that, that what are the leadership traits that are required when we are talking about a group? So I guess that is kind of a good understanding in terms of events, you know, As a student, when you're growing up, you want to become a leader, but you do not know what exactly it takes to become a leader. So this paper, again, I will say it is very preliminary stage because we have just started that work. It is kind of building up, you know, research kind of builds up. So it has been building it up from simple intragroup dynamics to leadership traits, which I have just published in 2019, that particular work. So it takes up that uh, work and It can be very helpful for the students to identify what can be the leadership traits, how the things can affect us and how to change the sequence so that we can, you know, accordingly be directed to the right direction. So these Mm -hmm. are some of the things, important things that interesting things that can happen with this particular task. This is kind of, you know, have you heard about psychohistory? I don't think so. Uh, Psychohistory, it's a fictional subject, means obviously that is there. So it's a fictional subject defined by Asimov, and as you might have noticed, I'm really very much fascinated by Asimov. So in that psychohistory also, the subject is where you are able to make the prediction of human behavior. So I would not say we have reached that stage in my work, but it appears that if, you know, pushed in the right direction, it might be possible someday for us to really make prediction about human behavior in long terms. So that is, I find that interesting. Work interesting for me.
1: I see. What sort of data did you use?
2: One advantage of being a teacher is you have uh, access to a lot of students, right? So the data that I gathered was from my students only. So like their basic networks, how the, their friendship networks. So that was the data with their consent. I used to. Uh, you know, model the things. Plus, I use the Hoffman neural network to model the
1: network. So that is the data that I was using. Hmm, I see. Very interesting. Let's transition a little bit and talk about uh, some of the books that you have co-authored. So you have written a lot of books and yeah, I just want to go over a couple of them and maybe we can talk about your, your process of writing them. One of your earliest books, this one is called uh, TensorFlow 1x Deep Learning Cookbook uh, co author with uh, Antonio Gulli. So this book is an easy-to-follow guide that lets readers explore various deep learning techniques and hands-on recipe to work with TensorFlow on desktop, mobile, and cloud environments. So can you talk about the process of writing and publishing this book?
2: So I would like to start off with how I got the chance to write this book, first of all. So it was basically, uh, you see, I was at that time experimenting with blogs, and I had written a small blog post on Deep Blue. Kind of, I just published it on LinkedIn and Tushar from Path Publishers, he came to came through that particular post. So then he asked me whether I'm interested in writing a book or not. till that time, I'd never even thought about writing a book. So I thought, okay, that's a nice proposal. I enjoy writing, I enjoy reading. So maybe writing a book would not be that bad. So I started it up and I was very lucky to have Antonio as my co-author because he was very experienced. And the things that I had no idea about in writing of book was something which like since he was very much familiar with the whole writing process he kind of you know guided me through the whole thing so it was like not just researching and reading that was important but it was also presenting it in the right manner to the audience that was important so that is something which i learned from my first book itself and with the help of antonio and the whole back team which were there to you know work up with the whole situation and Finally, I guess it comes out well. in the process, there was lots and lots of learning for me as well, because the book was written not for beginners, but it was being written for professionals who were already aware of deep learning. In that sense, it made me it made it much more necessary to very much sure that whatever you're writing is, you know, more than 100% correct there should not be any doubt of any, you know, anything wrong out here. So that was it was kind of a challenging but interesting book for me.
1: I see. So the book was written in 2017. And as I mentioned, the title is covered in the earlier version of TensorFlow. It looks like the book covers a variety of recipes. Is there any particular part of that book that you just enjoy writing about?
2: Well, I enjoyed writing each and every part of it, to be very honest. But yes, uh, the chapter three, which was the starting chapter, That was most interesting because it was talking about the basic perceptron, initial ones. Another part which I enjoyed was the generative models. So for me, working with generative models was also, at that time, it was kind of my first experience with generative models. So I learned a lot writing about generative models. And at the same time, you know, when implementing them up, it was a great experience, you know, seeing real generation happening was Mm -hmm. at that moment, kind of, you know, a great feeling even you if you know that can happen seeing it happen like for example seeing gpt writing all that stuff kind of makes you still feel oh wow
1: yeah and, and generative models i think you mentioned here in the book you talk about yeah. like autoencoders and and deeply yes and
2: yes all generative
1: models yes yes got it continue to the topic of tensorflow right uh, the next book that you work on also with pack this one is called tensorflow machine learning projects co-author this time uh and Kitchen and Amando Fernando. I guess, like, how is this book different from the previous one?
2: The book uh, has different audience. That is one of the major differences. Like, the first book assumes the person has knowledge of deep learning, but they want to shift their deep learning from their existing platform to TensorFlow platform, right? And this book is basically for the people who know TensorFlow, who know a little bit of deep learning, but have no idea about real-world projects where they can apply So that was the target audience of this particular book. So we took up the real world applications, the real world projects that can be done in this case. For example, the credit card fraud detection using auto encoders. So Mm -hmm. it was basically these kind of applications, the real applications, that was the focus of this particular book.
1: Mm, I see, yeah. Any particular application in the book that uh, you uh, enjoy writing about?
2: Yeah, uh, basically, in this particular book, I was like, I worked up with large scale object detection. So again, you know, for me, wherever I learn more, I enjoy writing that more. So working with large scale data was for the first time with this book in my case. So learning about TensorFlow Spark and learning about, you know, Apache Spark and all that stuff, Spark deal, that is what went through writing all these things. So, you know that way, that particular chapter of object detection at large scale was one of the chapters which I really enjoyed writing.
1: Mm, I see, I guess it's going to cover like the whole TensorFlow ecosystem from TensorFlow yes. to yeah. TensorFlow.js to TensorFlow Live, right? So, so I guess like talking about application in, in, in web and mobile and um, hardware device as well, right? Right. The, the third book that you been written. So this one, you used a soul author uh, written, written last year and so on Thanks. artificial intelligence for the Internet of Things. And the book discusses different AI techniques to build smart IoT system, covering practical case study in personal and home device, industrial application, and smart cities. What are some of the couple of principal challenges in dealing with IoT data? And can you share, again, George, one of your favorite examples of building an end-to-end IoT system from the book?
2: What I would say out here, the principal challenges in dealing with IoT data is the data itself. Getting that data is you know, uh, with the sensors, you have lots and lots of data. If you have sensors already installed, that is the fun part. The second part is cleaning it up. Since it's always a raw data, you have to clean it up. So these are some of the challenges which you face when you're working with IoT data. Uh, Both cleansing and getting the data and then, you know, making it up in a format so that you can finally send it to a model is even while writing the book that was the greatest challenge if I faced that finding up the data set which is IoT data set and is in public domain that was the greatest challenge which even I faced when I was writing this particular book. Regarding my favorite example I would say there was an example of in the case studies there was one particular example uh, where I was talked about uh, computer vision system which can detect fires or uh, have detect presence of helmets. So I was helping out one particular company deep inside AI labs mm-hmm. with this particular thing. So I had taken up their consent and I've added that particular as a case study in the book also. So this was one of the interesting example, I would say. Plus, there was one interesting example of a shoe, which smart shoe, which could, you know, walk by itself. So that is kind of a funny example, which was one of, again, you know, an interesting example, but a funny example from MIT MIT lab, where they developed a shoe which could take you through the pathway. So it was connected with the sensors on uh, your mobile and it will just lead you the way, wherever you want to go. So kind of dancing shoes. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I see. Back back to that earlier, Paul, you mentioned that IoT data is huge and uh, it's also streaming data, right? It come in continuous fashion and you have to handle like terabytes of data at a time. And I think like in this book, you also have a couple of chapters on like distributed computing for, for IoT, right? And yes,
2: just, yes, yes. There was uh, distributed processing for IoT was done because as I mentioned that the data is really vast. So it is very much necessary to distribute that data and uh, you know do the distributed computing part. So that was added up here. And even to do that, how to divide the data set, data itself into, you know, SQL using SQL or HDF5. that was covered, plus the distributed platform of TensorFlow, that was also taken into account in this thing. Although okay. it is covered in much more detail in the next book, but yes, that was kind of introduced in this particular book as well.
1: One part of the book, focus of this book is also on, on time series data, right? Um, so I guess like how is using deep learning to work with time series data different? from other type of data, like images or text or, you know, audio, or, or, or like tablet data, I guess.
2: Yeah, the time-series data is kind of very different in the sense that there are hidden patterns into it. When I say hidden pattern, it means there can be a trend which we have to remove out. There can be some sort of a seasoning effect happening. Like, for example, for example, let us say we take about talk about the COVID data itself. Now, if you see the COVID data, you will find there has been regular dips, weekly dips it is increasing the number of cases increase are increasing but there are also dips in between and those dips are normally happening a day before the week so it's like weekends so friday saturday sunday there are dips and then again from monday onwards there's a rise right mm-hmm. so understanding finding these kind of trends and then removing them so that you can see exactly what is happening in the data is something some of the challenges which are there in time series data but not in normal image data or text data. They have their own challenges, means text data have its own challenges, image data has its other challenges, but with time series data, this is one of the important things. And second thing is, obviously, since it is a series, that means what is happening today is linked with what is happening tomorrow. You just cannot treat them independently. So, you know, you just cannot reshuffle the whole thing as it is and take it up.
1: Thanks for sharing that. Your most recent book, it's called Deep Learning with TensorFlow 2 and Keras, yes. second edition, co-authored uh, this book with Antonio Julie and uh, Sujit Pao. What are some of the updates of TensorFlow 2.0 that you revised in this book compared to like coverage of your previous work on, on TensorFlow 1.0?
2: Yeah, so one of the important things that happened with the TensorFlow was that now, you see, we had... Eager execution taking place till that time, what I mean, still TensorFlow 1.0, whatever you had to define a session first, whatever you have defined a the model, there, you, there was a need of session and every computation used to happen in session. So there was separate computation, a separate graph and separate computational part. These, these were happening at two different places. So you will first declare the model graph and mm-hmm. then you will do the computation. So that was kind of, not uh, I would say intuitive enough, especially when there is an error in the model. It was not really intuitive enough and it was not really easy enough for everyone. So one of the important changes that happened was that now, eager with eager execution, you could just directly do the uh, modeling without defining a session. so that is one of the in, uh, most important changes I would say that happened in this particular Tensorflow two version beside that you see it kind of uh, had nice correlation with uh, Keras. Mm-hmm. So the TensorFlow Keras provided a very convenient platform to write down complicated models, you could have used the conventional sequential API of Keras, or you can even use the model API of Keras and make your own models in the same form, like the Keras model. So that was, again, another important thing and then distributed computing. So that became just, you know, flawlessly easy with TensorFlow 2.
1: Can you, I guess, elaborate more on that last point on on, uh, distributed computing via TensorFlow 2.0?
2: Basically, what happens is in the case of uh, TensorFlow 2, the distributed computing takes place by itself in the sense that you just have to define the processes and everything. They have this library, Distribute Strategy. That is the name of the package that they have added up. So in Distribute Strategy, what happens is The whole code means like you just need to specify that you're using distribute strategy and rest all the work is taking place by itself. So, this is what makes it much more easier. So, you just need to specify that you want to use a distribution, which is let us say mirror distribution, or you want to use some other distribution, whatever distribution you want to have for your processes. You just need to define that and you define the data sets and rest all. Uh, you know, division of the data set, division of synchronization of the weights among different models that all takes place by itself through the distributed strategy uh, module that has been there in the TensorFlow 2.0.
1: Thanks a lot for putting that. I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. I guess like, are you working on on, on any book at the moment? Or do you plan to write anything in the future?
2: There is a talk of quantum TensorFlow book with Pact again not really sure when we start but yes that talk is going on and right now i'm working with antonio on one another project on anthos uh, uh, google cloud platform so just a little bit about that means like it's still uh, like in the planning stages i would say
1: definitely looking forward to it you know, besides teaching, besides writing books, I guess you also participate in a variety of the projects in, in the field con- connecting with the community in broad. So I want to go over a couple other projects that you were involved with in the past four years. So, uh, back in 2017, you participated in the NASA's Centennial Space Robotics Challenge, in which your team finished in the top 20 out of more than 100 teams worldwide. So, can you go over this experience?
2: It was kind of a changing movement in 2017 had a lot of changes for me so this was one of the interesting moments what happened was that I had done a robotics course from Coursera given by University of Pennsylvania it was the first course it means it was their first uh, batch kind of a thing difficult one and I wanted to put what I had learned to use uh, some real use so this competition was launched uh, by NASA and when I came to know about it, I decided to participate in it and uh, we formed a team. The project involved writing down a computer vision code where you had to control the robot, Valkyrie robot, on Mars, And the robot should be able to identify the knobs to press. So there were different colored knobs and it had to press them in particular fashion. It should be able to open the door. So it should be able to identify where the door handle is. Then go forward. So there are like you know disk uh, there. So it should be able to balance and rotate the satellite disk and so on. Things. These were the some tasks which were involved into that. And we were working on ROS. We were using AI. We were using Python, and we were working with Gazebo as the environment simulator. So it was in the sense the most exciting experience because. Uh, you see, the Casper system, the Ross system, they were all too heavy system. And the Valkyrie robot by itself is really very heavy, mm-hmm. right? They used to take so much memory that many of the teams, they were facing the same problem that, you know, the system crashes. Even I had my system completely down because uh, uh, in the whole process, but, you know, it was still very exciting to do that. So whenever you were able to make your robot go through the whole thing. Do all the tasks properly that used to give you you know, a great sense of achievement and it required lots of runs, lot of changes in the code, how to identify the colors, how to make sure that you know he always opens the door with the right pressure. and similarly how does it identify that this is the angle it has to make it can be any angle so how does it identify should we control it manually should we give it a little bit of intelligence and we had to you know struggle between the two so something sometimes we were giving it some sort of intelligence sometimes we were giving we were doing all the instructions manually so that was kind of you know hybrid approach towards intelligence that is what i would say we tried with valkyrie
1: hybrid approach i see Again, the biggest challenge, if I recall correctly, what you mentioned, is just the the poor hardware aspect, right? The, the robot is, is re- require a lot of memory power, compute power. You need to design a, a system that can handle that bucky aspect of the robot.
2: And taking into account the time delay as well, because like we were yeah. talking about mass, so there was a time delay also. So, you know, taking all these things into account was a challenge.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating, yeah. In 2019, you volunteered with a group of friends to build an acute myeloid leukemia detection system that won an award for the Intel Showcase in Europe. What was the backstory behind this and how did the system work under the hood?
2: Yeah, so the backstory behind this was that I had basically very recently in that particular year lost my maternal uncle to leukemia. I'm, I was attached to him. So i was feeling sad about it that we could not do anything and then i met some group of friends on facebook who were means like basically adam was one of the main person out here he also had his granddad suffering from leukemia at that time so we wanted to we talked with each other and we thought that if we can build up a system which can lead to early detection it might save more lives so with this idea, we kind of, you know, volunteered, we had many more people coming up together and we developed a convolutional neural network based model, which can detect, which can do the early detection through blood cells of uh, leukemia. And the interesting part was that can all be working, work directly, means you don't not require big systems for that. We developed it in such a manner that it can you can you just use the intel stick and it will work with just raspberry Pi or something like that so that is what uh, the whole project was all about so that you know even hospitals people can implement it
1: My understanding when i do some research on this disease that is it's quite rare and aggressive it is from a data processing and, and modeling perspective uh is yes. any possible yeah uh,
2: so the first challenge that is there is obviously once the model has been trained then you can use it anywhere but the first challenge that we had was of the data set. So we used the data set provided to us by Fabio. And uh, we used that particular data set to train the system. But that was just 150 images, which is not sufficient for a convolutional network. So there were approaches like people had tried to use data augmentation. So we initially started with data augmentation, at least in the award that we have got, we have used the normal data augmentation techniques to you know, increase the data. And right now we are working on using Dan to generate data. So that is what we are working on, and we have found that it is improving the performance of our model by at least two percent, which is great in you know that perspective, in the sense that like uh, you know even a two percent increase is a great increase if we can detect early leukemia. So we are working on that particular part right now, getting the images, training the model, doing a lot of data augmentation, which involve a lot of processing in the sense that you know you have to be sure that the augmentation you are using is comparable with what happens with normal blood cells i just cannot do any augmentation like we do with normal images so we have to be cautious about that and since we are working with the blood cells accordingly we have to do mm-hmm. the augmentation so that was a challenge which we kind of faced and kind of uh, obviously overcome and build up the system and eventually got the price and now we are building it up, we're doing the same data augmentation, but now using GAN for that because GAN images are comparatively more realistic. So mm-hmm. in my opinion, we should be getting better results and that is coming up. So we just need to see how to you know bring it to the next stage.
1: I see. Definitely include that to the show notes. The project also have a very well organized uh, GitHub repo. So yeah, that that'd be great just yeah. to just stick around and see how a different step within the system earlier this year you wrote a blog post looking at COVID-19 from a data center perspective yeah would you mind unpacking that
2: we all were really very much worried about the COVID and how it is going to shape up how it is going to affect and everyone was saying a month or a two month kind of a scenario at that time the first thing which got me into COVID data was Antonio's post Antonio being from Italy was very much worried because the situation was going very bad so they wanted to analyze what is happening in Italy. Mm-hmm. So since I got interested with the Italy data and there was a lot of data available for Italy, so I, we, I started doing modeling and prediction about it. So at that time, we had no idea how long it is going to last. But as I started working on it, I realized that even for a 2 crore of population, if we are talking about herd immunity, and it is a conventional infectious disease, then it will take at least an year to, you know, die out in its normal sense. Though now we know that even one year may not be possible and even herd immunity may not be possible. At present, at least that is what we know. But at that time, that was kind of the first uh, work where the amount of time is going to be at least an year. That is what, like, you know, predicted. And then I wrote down the uh, medium post for that.
1: And the post also cover a lot of important concept, concepts I mean, specifically the, the SIR model. Yeah.
2: So we use the SIR model to model the disease, the infectious disease model. It's like basically some model is like compartmentalization. So you compartmentalize it into three compartments. So there are susceptible, infectious and recovered. So Mm -hmm. that is like how we do it. But the thing is like the model assumes that those who have recovered have totally recovered. Here we find that now that is not true. Those who have recovered can again be susceptible. So we need to have a leaky, some model to take it further to the next step now.
1: Also in response to the pandemic, you are currently mentoring at NeuroMatch Academy, which is a non-profit online course that specializes in computational neuroscience. How was your your experience with the program?
2: It was kind of, I would say, very extensive program. It was a 15-day program. It just ended on 31st of July. One thing was like, you know, firstly, you were interacting with so many people learning so many things and everything condensed into a day so it was you know sometimes you were feeling 24 hours or less so it was too extensive a program but it was really good because i was able to connect with the students i was able to uh, you know teach them i would not say really teach them i would say mentor them that would be a right word out here I was able to facilitate their learning, that is probably the best description of what I did. So I facilitated the learning to a small group of 10 students, which were associated with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was kind of the thing that like I had students from Nigeria, the students from UK, Spain, Brazil, uh, even Iran for that matter. So that was the most kind of, you know, an interesting group working together doing projects, learning together, and then, you know, there was this whole organization of Neuromatch Academy standing behind, helping you out, and solving any doubts which was there. So it was really an interesting experience for me.
1: My understanding is in, in, in this program, a small group of uh, three to five students work together on, on projects and, and, and yes. u- utilizing large, publicly available data sets. So for, for your group specifically, like what are the projects that you have mentor?
2: Yeah, so the projects that I was working up with when my students was basically they were dealing up with the Steinmetz data set. That is a mouse data set in which there is a neuropixel recording of mouse brain when it is doing a particular task. The projects which I was involved was like basically they were taking talking about the is there a bias in the decision or the perception? So you know there is a trial history, something has happened in the past. So does the mouse make the decision based on the present only or is there a bias present like for us more many of the times we do have a bias in human case because we do have, you know, Memory and things like that. Similarly, Understanding whether the mouse is also working in the same manner is its response similar. That was one particular project which I was like kind of working with. And then we had also analyzed modeling of motor response of mouse based on the stimulus that it is responding. So that also gave a good idea about what brain regions are, you know, involved in the motor task. So kind of, you know, it was very different from deep learning. They're related to deep learning because I was using machine learning models to model all these things. So mm-hmm. it was, you know, kind of fun in that sense.
1: That's very interesting. Just a broader general question, like for people who who are interested in learning more about computational neuroscience, what are resources? What do you recommend them?
2: I would say, first of all, uh, the Neuromatch Academy, they have come up with their GitHub link, right? They have a GitHub repo where all the tutorials and everything has been made completely available free of cost. So that is one of the good places to start. Besides that, there is a very nice online book available on dynamic computational neuroscience, which I would suggest to everyone. And then there is a Coursera course also on computational neuroscience. I guess these are good starting points for anyone to start.
1: Perfect be sure to include them in the show notes. I watched a video from Udacity India last year, which shared your stories of uh, basically taking various Udacity Nanodegree programs, including things like self-driving car engineers and deep reinforcement learning, among a couple of others. And it seems that like you, in general, was a big advocate for massive online course program, like right? you mentioned Coursera a few times. Can you share your experience taking these uh, online programs?
2: Yeah, definitely. Like, for example, means when I was advocating all these programs, I never imagined that a situation like COVID can ever come. But what I found when I was taking these courses, as a student, they can have access to the course throughout whenever they want. That is one of the advantages of any online course. That means I'm not bounded with the time, right? I can take it anytime. If I can be there, it's good. If I cannot be there at the same moment, again, I do not miss much, which is lacking in the physical classes. You have to be there always. That is one particular aspect. Secondly, even if I attend the physical class, it's like I can see it from the perspective of my students that even when I take a physical class, there is a speed which I have to maintain because I have to finish my labors in a prescribed time. My class cannot go beyond one hour. I cannot have more than four hours in a week. I cannot have more than, you know, about 12 weeks of total class time or 60 hours of total lecture within a semester. But there are times when you do require to go into depth Why? because the students might need it. So that Mm -hmm. is not possible in the physical classroom scenario unless the student comes to you personally and asks you which sometimes students do but most of the time they do not do so in that perspective i think that like here they can just you know go on repeating and listening the same video again and again. that is one of the things which they can which helps in online classrooms right and then there is the biggest part is the discussion forums or the you know community that is built like even with the new match that was online but the community that is built at star at stack channels or the discussion forums is like, you know, that is what carries on. So you have lot of people, you can put up your questions, there's so many people to answer. So it's like, for example, even if I'm teacher, I may not be expert in everything. So maybe a student has a question of which I do not have an answer. But when you are on the online platform, there are so many others to answer that question. Mm-hmm. So I guess that also kind of adds up to the learning and You know, no one can be expert in everything. Even if I talk of a subject, this subject like AI is so vast, it's really difficult to say that I can be expert of everything. I can be expert of CNNs. I can be expert of gas. It is just almost impossible to say something like that, right? So in that particular sense, I think these online platforms provide a better perspective. And now with COVID, I guess that is kind of life saving for both the teachers as well as the students. Right
1: now, they are the necessity. i mean, uh, taking a fair share of classes, online classes in the past uh, two or three years or so and definitely agree with the fact that the biggest benefit is in terms of, you know, like I mentioned, the communities, the selection of the forums where you can have conversation on topic, but like yes. extend this conversation a bit further sure. with people who are specific interest in that regard, related to what you already talked about. But since COVID, how would you, you know, personally teach students? Uh,
2: I, I have to start my classes from Monday and uh, I have decided means like this uh, obviously I will be following my uni- university protocol, which is like taking classes on Google Hangout, but I've decided that it's like I did a little bit of survey of my students, uh, mobile and all that stuff. I just requested them to give me a little bit of data and most of the students are using mobile data pack. They are using mobile to assist the online classes. So that means they may not be able to attend my class when I'm doing it because mobile pack is limited. So I've decided that I will put it up into YouTube once I record the things, so that they can assess it later also. Means even if they're not able to join the Google Hangout at that time, they're able to assess it. Plus, yeah, obviously emails and comments are always available, so that you know if they have any questions, I'm always open to answer that particular perspective. That mm-hmm. is how we can help our students, which is kind of difficult because you see the scenario is very different as compared to other online classes that I take and the online class, which I will be taking within my university. Like I had an online class just now in university of Oxford for AI. Mm-hmm. So the thing is like there was comparatively much easier because the students have access to internet, they have access to computers. And you know, it was just, you know, giving them information about the subject, but when it comes to, india the situation is slightly more complicated because of the fact that we are still a developing country so i have to accordingly you know change my scenario within my university but yeah other places like in university of oxford things have become better for me i would say because otherwise i would not the class that they have they used to have it uh, offline so i would not have been able to teach in that class but because now it was online it was a good opportunity for me to teach there and that is, I would say online is both advantageous. At the same time, it has certain challenges for some people.
1: And we have to respect them. Yeah, I see. You just go up that note on teaching that online classes at the University of Oxford. And my understanding was that they decided to run a course on, on AI and they were using your book as a textbook. Yes. And that's why they invited you. Yes. Yeah, can, can you just uh, talk shortly about the, the story behind that?
2: Yeah, so basically uh, I had been in touch with Professor Ajit since I started writing Artificial Intelligence for IoT book. He uh, liked that book and it was part of his previous course, which he had been doing for many years now on IoT. And actually this uh, AI book was based on that course only. And then when we come up with a new book, the TensorFlow 2.0 book, the latest book, he liked it very much and he decided to design a program around that book. This was the whole idea how it started it up. And because of the pandemic, they decided means university decided to run the course completely online. So he asked me if I can teach and obviously I was too glad to teach. I enjoy teaching. As you can see, I talk a lot. So I was part of it. And then it was a nice experience in the sense, again, it is interacting with the students, which make it more interesting. So we had very interesting students. And making, you know, challenging exercises for them was another interesting task which I was doing uh, beside teaching. So it was all enjoyable in that particular way. Giving up, right, making up exercises, interacting with the students and then taking the class per se itself. So it had been a very fabulous experience. It was a very nice team, Peter Holland, Professor Archie and the rest of the team that they had developed there. It was really great.
1: And just one quick note on, um, you taught that the University of Delhi, which is uh, in, in New Delhi, India. And yes. I'm just curious, you know, like, how would you describe sort of the tech and data community in New Delhi?
2: The data community is very vibrant, but it is all made up of young students. I would not say our teachers are that much participative in that. So that is something which is lacking. I guess we in India still have, you know, that a uh, gap between teacher and student, so that gap is still there i hope it breaks down slowly and slowly it will definitely right now it is there but otherwise students have a very vibrant community they organize lot of meets and they organize a lot of you know webinars even uh, you know live presentations and all that stuff sometimes they have invited me also to you know teach them at times it's all volunteer work but yeah it's good and it's great that they're doing it they're trying to learn whatever way they can. So yeah, it is a vibrant community and I'm really proud of our younger generation, that is.
1: Besides your career as a professor and author in in the field of artificial intelligence, you also write science fiction stories for your blog under an alias name, Amy Hofstadter. Would you mind sharing a bit about this hobby?
2: Basically, again, this goes back to my childhood in the sense that I have always been writing stories. I used to dream a lot and i'm not talking about dreaming while sleeping it's like lying down and dreaming and they have nothing in relation to me but you know some weird stories which i would always dream of and then i just thought one day why not write about those stories which i dream of what if this happens what if this happens and so on and in that sense i started writing it up and i was very much encouraged by my relatives in that sense because i have a lot of writers in my family like poem writers and things like that So I was kind of encouraged to write those stories and it started with that thing. And then I still continue it as a hobby in the sense that whatever it comes to me, I put it up on the blog and publish it up. So that is there. And uh, again, it's the the same that like sometimes you're sitting and you imagine what is going to happen. You see this happens, that happens. And then you just put it all down as a story. I would say I'm good at who
1: gets a good story and I just write it down. Yeah, that sounds like something that keeps you optimistic and, and, and motivated to complement your main work. So yeah, Dr. Kapoor, despite our conversation, I want to move on into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can give the answers for the listeners. And number one, name three people in the artificial intelligence universe whose work you admire.
2: Okay, so I would give the name of Alan Turing, J.J. Hoffeld, and Professor Hinton.
1: Second question, name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better scientific mindset.
2: Theory of Everything.
1: And then lastly, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the aspiring AI practitioners on Twitter, what could you tweet about?
2: Do not ignore maths, it is important.
1: All right, I think that's that's a great uh, end to our conversation. So yeah, Dr. Kapoor, I really enjoyed just kind of hearing about how do you pursue a path as an academic professor? Some of your PhD work on photonics papers that you work on that in intersect social analysis and ML. Uh, a variety of books, especially focused on TensorFlow and using neural networks for internet of Things data. Some of your extracurricular work from building robotics for NASA challenge to detecting leukemia disease. As well as your recent interest in computational neuroscience. And I thought you provided a very concise and insightful perspective on the future of education given the move towards online program at the moment. And I'll be sure to include all the links to the show notes so people have a chance to walk over and, especially, read a couple of the books that that we talk about here. I think there's very valuable materials for anyone who want to just getting started with test flow and learning more about some of the principal algorithms of deep learning. So yeah, Dr. Kapoor, enjoy our conversation and I hope you have a great
0: rest of your weekend.
2: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much James for making it very comfortable for me. It was really nice.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskaley.com It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.